This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show and podcast all about screen culture, from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. We're broadcasting tonight from the Triple R studios on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation. This is and always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Flick Ford, and I'm joined tonight by host of the Milling Yalingwa podcast, Wurundjeri and Nurai Ilam Warangman. Jasper Cohen Hunter. Hey, Hi, Jasper. Flick. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's been so long. We were just chatting it's off been air. A long time. Too long. On tonight's show, we're going to be speaking with the legendary director, producer, and screenwriter Fred Skepsy. Tomorrow night, Skepsy's debut feature, The Devil's Playground, from 1976, will be screened at the Capitol Theatre as part of RMIT's screening series, The Best Films You've Never Seen. We have covered the series before on the show, but we'll hear more from Fred and his debut feature in just a moment. And later tonight, Jasper and I will review two documentaries that centre First Nations stories. First up, Audrey Napananga, which premiered last night on NITV. Uh, the doco tells the story of Audrey, a Walpuri woman living in Alice Springs who raised between 32 and 34 children with her partner, Santo. And later, we'll discuss the four-part documentary series, Rebel with a Cause, which celebrates the personal journeys of four First Nations trailblazers from Queensland who create a pathway for future generations. Now, both documentaries can be streamed for free on SBS On Demand. So stay tuned. Up next, Fred Skepsi and the Best Films You've Never Seen series. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Australian director, producer and screenwriter Fred Skepsi has about 20 directing credits to his name. Listeners will likely be familiar with the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith, a 1978 classic, and a favourite of Quentin Tarantino. Or perhaps Skepsi's 1993 film, Six Degrees of Separation, starring Will Smith, Stockard Channing and Donald Sutherland. Or Roxanne, with Steve Martin as modern-day Serrano. Over the course of five decades, Skepsi has directed actors such as Meryl Streep, Sean Connery, Michelle Pfeiffer, John Cleese, Tom Selleck, Meg Ryan, Jamie Lee Curtis, Michael Caine and many, many more. It is my great pleasure to now welcome to the show Fred Skepsi. Fred, welcome to Primal Screen. Thank you. Hi. Tarantino called the chant of Jimmy Blacksmith a masterpiece and one of the top five Australian movies ever made. And during the press circuit for his film, The Hateful Eight, he hosted screenings of your film in Sydney and was in conversation with yourself and Thomas Keneally afterwards. Now, you made The Chant of Jimmy Blacksmith back in 1978 and your debut feature, The Devil's Playground, is screening at the Capitol tomorrow night. What is it like returning to these films with a cinema audience? Uh-huh. It's odd if I sit through and see them. Um, in the case of Devil's Playground, I've had occasion to do that over the years, sometimes five years apart, maybe ten years apart. And the weird thing 
and I start out by going, oh, why did I do that? <laughs> oh, that's good. Or what? But pretty soon I'm not doing that anymore. I get lost in the film and I recognise the passion involved, uh, which overrides everything. And uh, then I think to myself, I worked all that out about how you feel about certain things 40 years ago, <laughs> 48 years ago. Why am I still thinking I've got to work it out? <laughs> <laughs> now, the centre of the Devil's Playground is a 13-year-old boy called Tom who has been accepted into a Catholic juniorate, which is a school for boys who are training to become priests. It explores the trials of the flesh and the, the tensions that arise, both for the students but also for the brothers who are teaching them. And it raises some very interesting questions about the dynamic between desire and repression. This was a semi-autobiographical project based on your time spent in a Catholic juniorate yourself. And you made your earlier film, short film Priest, which features in the 1973 film Libido, which is all about a priest contemplating leaving the church because of his attraction to a nun. So what first prompted you to bring these very specific stories to the screen? Uh, there was a group here called the Producers and Directors Guild of Victoria. A hell of a lot of people got together and we were trying to learn about one another's discipline, you know, like I wanted to learn about theatre and television a little bit, television people wanted to learn about feature film, etc. And out of that came an idea to get writers who haven't worked in film or television or whatever, uh, get them to write a piece of material and then we as a group would produce them in theatre, television and film. So Libido came out of that. And I leapt on to Keneally because um, I just thought he'd be great. And, you know, since I'd been in a monastery, you know, I had a kind of pretty strong connection to all of that, kind of basically because of that. It made me think I wanted to do features. What what could I do as a first feature that would be different to what most people would do? And, you know, uh, and I thought the monastery is a world that has the whole world in it. Like every profession, every personality, pessimist, optimist, saddest, whatever, tends to be in it. So here is a world that people would hardly know anything about mm. uh, that would cover all that ground so they can discover something about that and discover something about themselves. So um, I just sat down and started writing it. There's so much humanity as well in those characters. I really love that the priests particularly are not one-dimensional, that you allow for them to have very contradictory views and relationships with God and there's so much universality in a lot of the discussions that come up and we hear a lot of that. Um, the casting is exceptional, particularly Simon Burke as 13-year-old Tom. You've also got Arthur Dingham as Brother Francine and you also have, uh, we mentioned Keneally before, you have Thomas Keneally pop up later in the film as a visiting priest who seems jolly but gives a very evocative sermon about eternal damnation, uh, which shook me. Um, there's so much nuance and complexity in their performance performances. What was your approach in directing the cast, particularly younger cast members like Burke? Look, you had to find people that kind of looked like the characters that they're going to play or 
be capable of looking like it. For instance, the much older brother, we did a lot of auditions. My wife at the time did casting, and we we did a lot of auditions, and people were going, oh, this doesn't read right when they were reading the older part. And I just kept believing, no, I've written this correctly. Mm. And finally, a person who was exactly the right age came in and a very experienced actor. He sat down and it was perfect. And uh, some of the other actors kind of had similar things like, I'm not sure that this dialogue works quite that way Mm. until we started to play it. And they started to play it as those people. You know, once I saw that they could click Mm. uh, with who they were going to be. Plus also I, I like to cast different shapes of people so that you get more interesting visuals on the screen. Um, you know, so you've got someone who's tall and thin, someone who's, you know, a little bent and old, someone who's quite stocky, someone who's a little plump, you know, uh, and it's a, a good canvas to play with. Mm. Most of them were obviously stage actors as well, well-known and well-qualified stage actors. And one of them also had been through similar experiences at boarding school as I had as well. Mm. So the young brother went on to become an opera opera singer. Really? (laughs) (laughs) You brought up dialogue before. I feel as though throughout your career, dialogue has played such an important role because you approach it differently. And I listened to an interview that you did from a few years back and you spoke about doing dialogue as action. Um, And that really stood out to me because you're a filmmaker who's so masterful at adapting books to screen. I'm just curious how you negotiate that balance between the written word and the visual language of cinema. You'll see a lot of films uh, where people get to chase sequences or action sequences or outdoor situations and uh, they can be quite flamboyant and uh, sometimes inventive in that area. But when they get to the dialogue, it's a close-up, close-up, medium shot, wide shot, close-up, 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 close-up. Let's keep the people alive. You know what? It's boring. Mm. It's conventional and it's boring and it's wrong. You see, the thing you have to decide in a scene is what is the force of the scene? What is the scene about? What are we trying to do? And if, if the person speaking is what's important and they're informing you, as it were, about that, then that's who you're on. Don't go cutting to the other people. Stay on that person. Or if it's the effects of the words that that person is saying is on the other person, then stay on that person and watch what's going on in their face. Let it grow and develop. And that way you get the, the full meaning and the full impact of the exchange. I think one of the great achievements of your film, The Devil's Playground, is that you capture a beautiful contradiction in what's being said and also what's then being felt in the body. You have a moment in which the boys are talking with a lot of bravado about sex and rumours about who's done what, but throughout the conversation you cut to these close-ups of their nervous, fidgeting hands Is your approach to visual storytelling self-taught or did you turn to particular filmmakers for inspiration when you first started out? No, not really. Uh, (laughs) The last thing I wanted to do was do homages. Have I studied film 
formally no, but informally yes. I started going to seeing Europeans, not films, not for the right reasons. When I was fifteen, you know, uh, I thought I might see some naked women, but uh, <laughs> but uh, actually, what I what I saw were great worlds that I knew nothing about, and and I was learning such extraordinary things and always finding myself in in that material. So I never w- ever wanted to imitate that, but undoubtedly you're influenced by it. But it's a springboard for you to try and do something different and say things differently. For instance, in Devil's Playground, uh, my cameraman Ian Baker and I agreed that we, the camera would not move unless it was motivated to move by someone walking or talking or doing something, that the camera was following or going in on, or, you know. But the rest of the time it was basically still, mm. unless it was motivated. There were a number of reasons for that because I think, you know, many times people are just doing dazzling effects. You, 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 you see it, the best example is when they get something new that they can play with, they just do it because they can. It has no rationale Mm. for being in the film whatsoever, like drones. Everything you see now has got a drone shot. Why? Just because you can. It's not necessarily doing something to the film. And that was sort of the premise we had when we did Devil's Playground. Being on the faces, just to pick you up on your earlier question, there's a scene where Arthur Dignam is being very guilty about something and in the scene we see him sort of off to one side and in the background and something carries us over to him and we stay on him and then he starts to lose it. He starts to, you know, almost have a breakdown and he stands up and he moves across the room and then he comes right forward and you stay on that the whole time. Mm because he's the force of the scene. When we shot it, I shot the reactions of all the other people because, you know, the audience is going to want to know what effect is that having on them because they're all going through similar stuff. And it became very clear, never leave the force of that film because as you're moving with him, as he steps around and through and out from the other people, you can choose very quickly to see what effect it's having on the other people. You can, instead of cutting to them mm. and going away from this dramatic moment, yeah. you know, anyway. And that scene in particular, his performance, it takes you on this journey in such a short amount of time. So I love that the camera stays with him because yeah. you're right, the, you don't get to see that often. And there's a scene where uh, a young boy has died. And again, we covered it close ups and everything because it's in the headmaster's room and uh, all the brothers are there and they're all feeling guilt. Mm. And the best thing you could do was very low, sort of the camera was actually outside the door, just poked in, so you can see everybody and never cut to anybody because, in fact, what it was was group guilt. The title of your film, The Devil's Playground, is, I imagine, a reference to the proverb, an idle mind is the devil's playground. Um, And in the film, while the young boys are given lots of tasks to keep them busy, there's also moments of idle play that are beautifully captured. You're an exceptionally prolific filmmaker and writer and producer. 
What role does idleness play, if any, in your creative process? <laughs> Question I'm asking myself lately. Uh, <laughs> you can get lazy. <laughs> Particularly if you have a nice vineyard to go down to and commune with nature. Um, I don't like to be idle terribly long. I like to be working all the time. Uh, writing, of course, uh, you sometimes wish you could be somewhere else and going through a particular struggle or not quite believing that you started on something that's going to turn into something terrific. But it's the... Uh, you have to force yourself to just sit there, sit there, work at it, work at it, write anything, just keep going. And just as you're about to step out for the day, it all starts coming. <laughs> and you then have to skip dinner and keep going. Otherwise, you'll lose it. Mm. You know, I like the excitement of writing is one thing. That's great. It's mm. an end in itself. And then you get into very early pre-production and you get into pre-production. All of that, location surveys, planning, how you see everything, all of that is an end in itself. Mm. You know, and then if you're lucky, you get to go on and shoot. And that's, you know highly energised and adrenaline-powered and all of that. And you're, you know, you're getting influenced by how people are interpreting your things and your set designers are doing things and your cameraman. You know, everybody's contributing from aspects that you can't always see. Mm. Uh, and you pull all that in and out of that emerges stuff you never even hoped you'd get to do. So it's extremely exciting. And then there's the editing, which is uh, semi-rewriting. <laughs> I love the attention to detail you do give to the written word, though. It's a pleasure to unpack your film and to return to the Devil's Playground. Uh, Fred, you received an Order of Australia for your service to Australian film as a director, producer, screenwriter, but also as a mentor to emerging filmmakers. What advice would you give to folks who are starting out of the industry and wanting to make a mark? Study great works, and I don't mean, you know, these days classic films are from the 1980s. No, no, no. Go all the way back, see all the great works, see the great works from every country. You'll be surprised where they come from mm. and how they will help broaden your horizons and attitudes, you know. Uh, make sure you see lots of them. Get out, start having your own ideas. Don't worry about how it's written or whether you have final draft formatting or anything like that. Just write. Write stuff down. Everything you think of, what you'd like to see, how you feel, what it is. Do it. Write, write, write. Mm. It's a muscle that you have to develop, you know. And then get together with some like-minded people and help one another make films. Start with some short films. If you want to be really sensible, Find a great short story where the writing is already terrific so that you're not having to get that right while you're trying to mm. learn about what you do in filming, you know. So get something strong and good and then try and make a film of it and get a lot of people together to help you and just keep at it. And while you're young, you don't know all the things you should know 
which is great because you've got all the courage to just keep busting on regardless of what people say to you. You just back yourself and what you believe in and what you feel and why you're doing it. That is excellent advice. And I love that you've touched upon the fact that you've gone outside of cinema for a lot of your references, not just literary, but also there is such a beautiful painterly experience to watching your films, particularly A Devil's Playground. Ian Baker and I, that's all of my films. Oh, wonderful. We always hang out. He went to art school, Swinburne Tech, and we always hang out in galleries looking at the works of great painters and uh, and, you know, not just for imagery, but for emotion and all of those things. But So when we were making Devil's Playground, we would occasionally joke as to which artist the shot was uh, referencing. <laughs> I would love for there to be a re-release where you just let us in on exactly all the references, maybe some sort of bibliography that you could release <laughs> with, with, the, with the DVD or something like that. Fred Skepsi, it has been an absolute honour to chat with you tonight. Thank you very much. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Jasper Cohen-Hunter and myself, Flick Ford. And we're going to be sticking with the Red Centre for our first review of the night, Penelope McDonald's documentary, Audrey Napananga, about a Walpuri woman, Audrey, who raised between 32 and 34 children with her partner, Santo. Jasper, this was a film that you got me onto. I watched it last night because it was mm-hmm. when it premiered on NITV. Yeah. And then I rewatched it today on um, SBS On Demand. It is rewatchable and I think Very I much will so. watch it as well. So much to unpack. So firstly, Penelope McDonald is a close friend of Audrey, um, which I think is very apparent in the way that this is filmed. And just on that, sometimes when we're talking about documentary, I feel as though we can get caught in the subject and talk about how important that is as a subject, or we might talk about the form that it takes and you know, focus in on the talking heads and the editing or whatever. There is so much beauty in how this story is presented and I love it when you can just enjoy a documentary purely on just how it looks and how it makes you feel mm-hmm. just as a film on itself and then the subject matter is just so captivating, so heartbreaking in different parts but also so stirring. She has yeah. so much gusto. What a wonderful woman to be the subject of this documentary. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, at the base of it, Audrey is a woman that washes blankets. She has a house that is open for the community and her family and she's the matriarch of her family. And you can see that on the screen, not just depicted in the way that there's a close relationship between the camera and Audrey and Santo, Mm. but it's her presence that she brings. I was thinking when I was watching this, that if anyone's familiar with the work of the Bush Queen of Brie Warriner, Auntie Essie Coffee, uh, My Survival as an Aboriginal, Mm. this film is perhaps the only film that I've ever felt that actually was very similar in the way that it made me feel, editing-wise, with the music and the presence. That's a rare – like that's something I probably would never even say out loud, but I just did (laughs) because that is the probably the most perfect – 
example of Aboriginal filmmaking mm. ever done. But the, the essence that Audrey brings onto the screen is it feels the same. It's that mm. same warmth. It's that same big auntie energy that you only really see from Auntie Essie Coffee in My Survival as an Aboriginal. Yeah, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> you touched upon this before. There's there's an intimacy there between the camera and the subject, and I think that is a real rarity, especially when you're telling a story such as this, which is both very personal, but it's also talks to so much more. You know, there's lots of scenes in which Audrey and lots of other women have flown to Canberra to protest the fact that Aboriginal children are still being taken away from their family. And I was watching this as I was nursing my young baby and I cried through a lot of this film. There is so much to this. We should mention that the film is also has a campaign behind it. Mm -hmm. Um, You can head to audreynapananga.film.com forward slash take action there's a little tab there um we'll we'll put a link on on our page because it's actually a documentary for change it's it's they're working on bringing education trying to make change in in the community it's interesting because the campaign i was looking into it there's so much there and yet when you're watching the film it doesn't feel way down the fact that Mm -hmm. i could watch it twice in 24 hours how do you feel about it jasper i just feel like they mcdonald does a beautiful job of balancing politics with the personal I think it's through the camera work but also the pace of it and there's a tightness to it as well absolutely I think that there's um, a deep sense of intersectionality in this documentary and there's a clear understanding here of the link from land displacement to climate change to the justice system it flows Mm. because there is a recognition from the production team of that intersectionality of the cause of all of these issues. I think that there are so many documentaries where they try and pile in all these different social issues at once and sometimes it feels overcrowding. Or that you're being lectured. Exactly. Mm. But Penelope understands very well the Mm. root cause of all of these Mm. issues being the land displacement Mm. of Aboriginal people, the loss of cultural law that isn't being taught to children. There's scenes within the classroom. There's scenes within the prisons and... It's often going back and forth between Mount Theo and the land of the Wapari on top of life in Alice Springs. It's going, it goes in and out, but it's just very clear that the language that the director wants to show, they know it. They know what they're talking about. Yeah. That's a rare thing, I think. I think yeah. that sometimes people shove their camera in the face of, of the subject often and yeah. try and, you know, get a spiel and, and see what they can get just for the sake of documentary. Yeah. But there is... The director is a character within herself. She knows what she's talking Mm. about when she's put this through the camera work to the editing at the end. It's just this beautiful wrapped up piece of work that, yeah, you know, I am going to watch it again probably Mm. tonight (laughs) or tomorrow. Like it's just, it's so beautiful. And there's so many moments, little moments that actually have huge significance. And the campaign behind this is is basically to eliminate the overrepresentation of First Nations children in out of home care in the youth justice system. Like you said before, we we do go into the prison during this film, and it's basically about backing community driven initiatives that actually support First Nations families. I love the fact that it is connected and anchored to this, because sometimes you can watch a film like this and just feel like, okay, but what next or what do I do and it feels overwhelming particularly like I'm saying that as a white person just like that sitting with this guilt and you're just like unless you take action we don't need any more white people 
wipe people's tears, you know, like that sort of mm-hmm. phrase of like that doesn't do anything, but taking action, being aware of this overrepresentation, that there are things that you can do, mm-hmm. practical things you can do. And also like on this show I often find we make decisions on what films we cover. There's something powerful in being able to select a film that will had its premiere on NITV like we said last night, but I just hope more people watch it. And I hope that more people get across this. It's not only just a beautiful film, like really stunning, amazing characters in this, you know, these obviously real people, but their souls are kind of put on on display. I really, Mm -hmm. I thought there was um, some tender moments with Santo and his brother, Santo Sicilian, and this combination of Walpuri culture, white culture, Sicilian culture, all in this house. And the hospitality that Audrey shows to her family is just beautiful. Yeah, look, I think it's even just a rare sort of character of family to see a family that you know, speaks Walpuri, speaks Italian and speaks English. Mm. It's so rare that it that's an interesting subject within itself, the use of language, the ethnicity of, of the family. It's something I've never seen before, to be honest, mm, which is why yeah. it's such an interesting documentary subject. They're, they're so watchable, aren't yeah. they, as a couple? I love there's a moment when Audrey's family have been there for quite some time and you mentioned the blankets. They're always washing blankets to, to be able to house you yeah. know, their family as they come to visit for hospital visits, for visiting family who are, in, who are locked up. And uh, Santo is just like, you know, when we have people stay, they stay for a day, they stay in a hotel. But, you know, Audrey opens up her house and also the children at the centre of this. I I just thought there was a real tenderness in we get to know them as well and the different challenges. And you get a real sense of the impact of generational trauma Mm -hmm. through these characters and not in a way that's forced. It's very specific. They're talking about their experience and it's just beautifully shot. I can't believe some of the footage that we see in this film. It opens with these gorgeous videos of Audrey as a young woman, as a young girl as well. It's really quite a spectacular film. I'd be curious to see how how people respond. It just was premiered last night, but it will be on SBS On Demand probably for quite some time. Yes, I I definitely think so and I would just recommend to just – Watch it tonight. It's only 90 minutes of your time. Um, It's not a demanding watch. You could just sit there and just embrace the screen that's in front of you. It's Mm. not only informative, it's not only powerful, but it's beautiful. And, um, yeah, please go watch this this beautiful film. Yeah, Audrey Napananga, the documentary, is going to be on SBS On Demand. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Rebel with a Cause is currently streaming on SBS On Demand. It's another documentary. This time it is a four-part documentary series. Mm -hmm. Some listeners may have already seen this film at uh, MIF. It played earlier this year at MIF as a two-part screening, I think, from memory. Yeah, so it basically had its first two episodes as a movie and its last two episodes as a movie, and I believe that it screened at Acme. So Mm. that would have been a really special event to witness, I think. Yeah, I think so too. They had a really interesting collection on First Nations filmmaking. I think sometimes that is the benefit of seeing these documentaries in that context Mm -hmm. because you're kind of in that space already. Luckily for us, though, Jasper, you have curated the two picks for tonight 
And I watched both of these in close succession. And mm-hmm. so I created my own little festival of First mm-hmm. Nations That's filmmaking. Amazing. Rebel with the Cause, there's there's so much to cover in this. It is, we should mention, I suppose it goes for an hour each, so four part, about four hours. Yeah. It is all available on SBS On Demand. Basically, it covers, it's got four subjects that are at the centre of each episode. Mm-hmm. Senator Neville Bonner, who's a Jagera elder, mm-hmm. and he was the first Indigenous person elected to Parliament and he served 12 years across four federal governments. We've also got former teacher and barrister Pat O'Shane, who was Australia's first Aboriginal magistrate, a position I think she held from about 1986 to 2013. Mm-hmm. And you've got radio host Tiger Bales, who presents for Sydney's Radio Redfern mm-hmm. and established the Brisbane Indigenous Media Association and, and the National Indigenous Radio Service, which we could talk all about First Nations on air. I feel like yeah. that's a whole topic in itself. Yeah. And we've, of course, got the um, poet, conversation, conservative, I don't know why I'm struggling on that word. Conservatish? Oh, no, I'm just going to... Conservationist. Thank Is that you, the word? Jasper, yes. I thought, I thought that's <laughs> what you might have been saying. <laughs> oh, yeah. An activist, Ujuru Nonakul. Ujuru Nonakul. Yeah, yes. who is the first Aboriginal person to publish a book of verse. Mm-hmm. All amazing subjects. It is sad to note that three of the four subjects are no longer alive. So really interesting digging into this uh, series. Now, did you first see Rebel with the Cause at MIF or were you watching it? On- I watched it weekly uh, with SBS On Demand. Oh, so it, yeah. was, uh, it was very interesting to watch it in that respect so that I had a week to digest what I was watching before the next one. I think Sometimes when you watch things all together, I'm sure if anyone binge watches something on Netflix, they know <laughs> oh, that sometimes that? <laughs> they they forget the character names and some mm. important things about it. So I think actually having it spaced out when it was first released weekly mm. was really special so that I could digest all the information, research it, learn more about all of the individual people. Mm. That was really important. I think um, also it's interesting, isn't it, when we see documentaries that go from festival to streaming, which, you Mm -hmm. know, particularly with with documentaries like this where there's huge social interest and also kind of an obvious obvious sort of episodes to it that can be packaged into mm-hmm. like you say a once a week thing but whether that whether that adds to it and I think you're right like I I would suggest for listeners to just take one episode at a time because there's yeah. a lot in there yeah and I think whenever we're talking about stuff that's quite loaded like this you just want to have time to sort of think about they're talking about very different time periods as well yeah uh, you don't want to kind of get to the point where it's just melting in to one. I was listening, um, we should mention that the one of the filmmakers, uh, Dina Curtis, did speak with Vanessa Morris actually on Banksia when MIF was on. Mm-hmm. So if you want to check that out, you can head to the Triple R website. I was re-listening to it today and one of the things that uh, Dina was talking about was that it was just really, they had already, they already knew who they were going to talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got these figures, a lot of them sort of in their twilight years and just wanting to really showcase this kind of, um, I suppose, black excellence, you know, yeah. this this kind of showing the determination, showing the re- resilience of this community and and also just rewriting. There's, there's a history that just doesn't get talked about. Yeah. So claiming that space and saying, actually, there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, there's a lot of really progressive campaigners, protests that were happening during this time. There were people who were making pathways into politics on the airwaves through, you know, the art scene. There, there was people making this impact because mm-hmm. um, they don't get talked about often enough. 
Yeah, I learnt a lot and I think that one thing that really sparked something with me is that I am always so focused, if it's cinema or arts or research, it's always about history of Koori people or history of the Kulin Nation or history of the Wurundjeri. It's never um, about the the wider aspect um, of Aboriginal politics and activism. And sometimes I'm so heavily focused on that that I think it was a real big wake-up call for me that I wasn't paying enough attention to. I guess the way to say it is we, we stand on the shoulders of giants mm. and there are so many giants, mm. <laughs> to be honest, that mm. um, it's always a wake-up call when a documentary comes out like this and I think, wait a minute, I... I have not been paying attention to the life of this person in enough detail that this 51-minute episode can display. And I feel like I've learnt so much already from that Mm. that I had to sit there for a week and go through absolutely every aspect of their life and research and understand who they were and and the, the power that they had and their struggle. That's what I would suggest people to do, to actually sit and read like the works of, of all of these individual people and what they did and the paths mm. that they made because this isn't a show that you can binge watch. You actually have to digest it. We've talked a lot on the show about um, the different ways in which when we're watching documentaries like this, they are both of these documentaries, they're connected up with with just reality and we mentioned the campaign that's happening for Audrey uh, Napananga and this one's it's slightly different there isn't a campaign behind it but these are just conversations that are that are in the air and that should be should be talked about more so yeah I think taking it slow with this and yeah they are an hour long and so just to sit with them I think it's really well executed as a documentary yeah. they cover a lot in that time and it, and it is very digestible there's lots of chosen really interesting different subjects as well I agree and so I, I feel like there was people where I was just like moments where I'm like I don't know anything about this and then by the end of the the documentary you're kind of like oh okay I, I feel like I've got a better sense of exactly what what that scene was like yeah. or what's some of the challenges were that came up and that is that is down to really clever filmmaking where you can make something that is very much outside of of your own experience very much outside of your own um, interests maybe and making it really enjoyable to watch I suppose um, and and just uh, digestible I love that this did play at the festival though earlier and I, I love that these stories are put onto the big screen the easy thing is with for both of the documentaries that you've selected tonight, they are free though, which is fantastic. It's amazing. <laughs> I feel like SBS is very good with keeping things on for a And their a curation while. is amazing as it well. It really is. People need to support SBS on demand. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Drop your streaming services. Just, <laughs> Just go to There's, SBS yeah. and Canopy and ABC Ivy set. Yeah, and <laughs> often people get overwhelmed by what to watch mm-hmm. and I really love that for tonight, Jasper, you picked two films that we could just trying to work out what to watch after dinner these are two docos that are just so just engaging and really important to watch and I I, yeah I just love documentary in general so I'm a bit biased but there's a lot to it and I think a lot of us are still reeling from the referendum and um that we need to start taking steps to be more engaged Mm -hmm. to being present um and and to understanding our history so um these are these are definitely 
films that step a step in the right direction, I think. Yeah. Rebel with the Cause is currently streaming on SBS On Demand. You've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Jasper Cohen Hunter and myself, Flick Ford. On tonight's show, we spoke with director, producer and screenwriter Fred Skepsi. It was an absolute honour to have Fred on the show. I'm a big fan of his work. It was kind of a bit surreal for me because I grew up watching his films. Uh, We also reviewed Audrey Napananga, which uh, premiered last night on NITV. That's when I watched it, but you can still watch it on SBS On Demand. And we also talked about just then uh, the four-part documentary series Rebel with a Cause, which celebrates the personal journeys of four First Nations trailblazers who map out a pathway for future generations. And while we're talking of docos, the Australian International Documentary Conference have just announced the first look at speakers and decision makers and buyers that will be at next year's event. Passes for that conference are also now available. So just head to aidc.com.au you for all the details and I'm sure we'll do some sort of interview or or spotlight on the Australian International Documentary Conference once that's all in place. I think it's going to happen in March next year which is very exciting. Um, Jasper, it's been lovely having you on. Thank you for having me on. Um, I was going to ask you for one last recommendation before we wrap up. Well, I should just say my survival as an Aboriginal. I already yes. mentioned that on the radio show. You can actually go in and watch that right now for free at Acme. And then after you've watched it, <laughs> listen back to Jasper's episode. Uh, if you don't already subscribe to the Milling Yalangwa podcast, you, you should. It's one of the best. Um, and I, I love your work. You give you are so detailed, so much research goes into each episode. Check it out. Thank you so much. No, my pleasure. Um, and thank you, Jasper. Um, also, thank you to Fred Skepsi for his time tonight, Lou Lynn for her producing support, and to Kelsey Pettifer for the socials. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 